You're listening to the latest Sunday edition of ATR Radio. It's October 11th, 2015. I'm Nicole Bennett. Today's episode, the final push for Rio 2016, and in other news, the global sports world is still reeling over the provisional suspensions of four FIFA heavyweights. The third and final Rio 2016 press operations briefing wrapped up in Rio de Janeiro on October 8th. It was the final chance for domestic and international press to meet with Rio 2016 organizers for one-on-one meetings to prepare for games operations in less than a year's time. Some 365 media representatives attended the briefing, including Around the Rings editor Ed Hula, ATR reporter Aaron Bauer, and ATR director of business development Ed Hula III. ATR editor Ed Hula said that the group's venue tour on October 5th began with a stop at the Olympic Stadium. So far, he added, it seems as though most of the venues are nearly finished. Well, today we opened up with a visit to the Olympic Stadium, as it will be called. It's the stadium to be used for athletics, track and field. It's been under a pretty substantial renovation over the past few years. It was used as a brand-new stadium during the Pan American Games in 2007. But there are some serious structural flaws to it, and it's been, uh, been as I say, under reconstruction for several years. And it's an important venue for the Rio Olympics because it is the sole venue for athletics. Track and field events will take place there over nine days. It's the home to a famous football club in Rio de Janeiro, Botafogo. And uh, we got uh, our really first look inside that stadium without construction cranes. It's been under underway for a long time. And that was followed by a uh, drive-by to a couple of new venues uh, that will be used for race walking and uh, the t- cycling time trials right along the beach near Baja de Tejuca. We visited the golf course, which is, of course, still under construction, but uh, looking even better than when we saw it back in August. Right now we're at a a collection of venues called Rio Centro, which is uh, in the very western reaches of Rio de Janeiro and Baja de Tejuca. Uh, Right across the road is the site for the Rock in Rio festival site that was very populated a couple of weeks ago, but they moved on. But this is going to be the venue for boxing, fencing, uh, weightlifting. Uh, Five sports will be contested out here in Rio Central. We're not too far away from the main Olympic Park as well as the Rio Olympic Village. We are in the very western edge of Rio de Janeiro, as I mentioned. So you've touched on this a little, but how is work going on different venues for the 2016 Olympics? Well, there's, everywhere you look, there's, there's work being done. It doesn't seem like anything is at 100%. Uh, here at Rio Centro, which is an existing venue, uh, the pavilions are all ready to go more or less, but there's a sixth pavilion under construction. We drove by the Olympic Village uh, just a few minutes ago on our way here. And while these seven, 17-story apartment blocks are look largely finished on the outside, there's just so much work going on around them to get the get the site ready for the athletes to come and stay there next uh, next next year. Uh, the golf course, as I say, is is pretty much done as far as the fairways go, but the clubhouse, the uh, back of house, the road works, uh, all that sort of stuff. Uh, still has to be completed. 
in order to be ready for the Olympic Games. And now, after this, we're going to the Olympic Park, uh, which is the really the focus of most of the events for the for the games. And there, I think we're going to see some substantial progress. Still, venues not 100 percent, but uh, on their way to being completed. There's word that Olympic budgets are being cut. What impact will this have on the Games in 2016? Well, the uh, the word is, and this has always been expected, that um, they're going to have to cut back. Uh, they don't have quite the income that they're expecting from sponsors and other sources of revenue at Rio 2016, so they're just making sure they don't overspend. They don't need to go to the government for a bailout. Uh, this morning, before we left on this on this venue tour, Sidney Levy, the COO of Rio 2016, uh, took pains to say that you know that they are a privately funded organizing committee. That the money they use to stage the games is from private, not public sources. So they have to be very careful with their money. But he promises fit games. You know, everybody's supposed to be fit and trim and agile and being able to uh, uh, have the, the, the endurance to, to win the race, well, that's what he wants from a real Olympics, a fit Olympics, a fit and trim Olympics, no more than is needed. And then second of all, fun. He wants it to be a fun Olympics. Uh, he promises that no budget cuts that are made will impact the actual games themselves. There may be things like paper cups or for the press. Uh, no biscuits uh, with the free coffee and water in the main press center. There are ways that they'll cut back without making things quite as nice, quite as elaborate. And as I say, the promise from Rio 2016 is that it won't affect the competition, the quality of competition, the quality of the field of play. That, I believe, is a sacrosanct expense that uh, must be covered. And is there any news about the ceremonies for the Olympics? Well, we heard yesterday from Leonardo Quitano, who is the director of ceremonies for Rio 2016. Uh, budget cuts certainly will affect them. Uh, it won't be maybe quite the splashy experience that we've seen in other opening ceremonies that may have been better funded. You know, the, the British government, for example, gave London organizers millions of dollars to help make their opening ceremony much more dramatic, much more of an impact. I'm not sure that the national government in Brazil has that kind of wherewithal to be able to do that. Um, but uh, he said the, the show will begin at, at sharp at 8 p.m. on August 5th in past Olympic Games. They've been starting it at uh, 8, 8.08 in the case of Beijing 8-12 in the case of the 2012 Olympics, and he said they're going to break that pattern by starting at 8 o'clock because that works out a lot better for the broadcasters. And he did allow that the ceremony, opening ceremony, was going to last three hours and 23 minutes, I believe is what he said. So they've got it down to the minute here, and uh, probably every minute costs. So saving money to make it a shorter ceremony as well. Won't run, it will not run four hours, at least that's the plan.
And of course, the Rio 2016 Olympic Games will open on August 5th. In other news, the global sports world was rocked this week by a decision from the FIFA Ethics Committee to provisionally suspend four football heavyweights. On October 8th, the ethics panel slapped Sepp Blatter with a 90-day suspension, along with Secretary General Jerome Valky and UEFA Chief Michel Platini. FIFA presidential hopeful Shang Moon Jun was handed a six-year ban from football. Sepp Blatter is suspected of making a $2 million payment to UEFA President Michel Platini in 2011. Included in the list of allegations that surround him right now are striking a World Cup TV rights contract with former FIFA Vice President Jack Warner, who we know is banned from football for life. Chris Eaton, Executive Director of Sport Integrity at the International Center for Sports Security, spoke with ATR following the Ethics Committee's announcement. He said FIFA is crying out for a structural overhaul. He also said that the ethics panel's decision to ban Bladder as well as Chung, Platini, and Valky was a long time coming. Well, I think that uh, a lot of people could have predicted that. It was probably likely to take place. So I think once the, uh, the Swiss investigation exposed uh, the $2 million, uh, Swiss franc payment to Michel Platini, there's no suggestion that's a payment of an illegal nature. Uh, the suggestion is it's a disloyal payment, which means not in the interests of the FIFA organisation. So it's a, essentially a company or a business offence rather than a criminal offence, uh, as I see it anyway. But I think once that became clear, then uh, there was always a matter of time, I think, before there was some uh, eth- uh, integrity challenge to, uh, to set Blatter. The whole thing has been inevitable for years. You know, the reality is that uh, FIFA has been subject to sustained allegations of malfeasance and corruption for a long time, you know, at least a decade. And sometimes they've been found, most times, though, they've been dismissed as being uh, irrelevant or unimportant or simply they've waited the time out. I believe that uh, this has been a long time coming, quite frankly, and uh, it's been a death by a thousand cuts when it could have been a very quick and a very sustained reform of FIFA several years ago. It has been replaced by a very painful, drawn-out saga and scandal. So Blatter's advisor, Klaus Stolker, has said that he doesn't think this is the end for the 79-year-old. He says that Seb Blatter will have the final word on all of this. What, from your perspective, happens next? What do you think Blatter's next move will be? Well, he has options now, of course, as does Michelle Platini and uh, Jerome Velk uh, and, uh, and Chung. Uh, they have a, uh, an ability and a capacity or at least a, uh, a, an allowance to appeal to the FIFA Appeals Committee. Uh, and if that doesn't work, they still have the CAS, the, the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport, available to them too. So there are appeal processes uh, against, this, uh, against these suspensions. And it's likely, I understand from Michel Platini's statement, that he will do that, that he will appeal it. But the point is the damage has already been done, sustained damage has been done to the FIFA reputation. And we mentioned, like you just touched on, Platini, Jerome Valky was handed a 90-day suspension, and Chung Moon-Jeon, who is a presidential or was a presidential contender, someone who was thought to take over probably in the future for Sepp Blatter. What do you make of all of this in a broader sense? What does this mean for world football, for other international federations? How does this affect them? Look, the most serious issue here is that 
Sport has always claimed autonomy and independence from uh, all from everybody really uh, this uh, cherished notion of autonomy you will recall that Thomas Bach the first task he took when he became the president of the IOC was to create an autonomy committee that was his first task it wasn't an integrity committee or an integrity platform his first task was to try to preserve the so-called autonomy of sport now I respect that position but clearly self-regulation in the sport governing body arena is not working and has not worked. Self-regulation does not work in an industry uh, uh, that assembles a great deal of a great deal of money, enormous commercial enterprises, enormous liquidity in their competitions and in their businesses, and governance has suffered because of that. So it's now time, completely now time, for an independent mechanism that uh, advises and supervises and oversights sport governing bodies. So I think the key key lesson we have today, today from FIFA is that sport governing bodies have to relinquish this cherished notion of complete independence and autonomy, recognise they are criminally liable and in any jurisdiction, and secondly, that they do need support across all sports in an independent, neutral way to ensure they are conforming to the minimum standards of behaviour in a business context. So what else do you think, I know you've touched on this a little, what else can be done to clean up FIFA's image in particular? I think FIFA needs to rebuild. Uh, and I don't mean reform, I mean rebuild from the ground up. The problem with FIFA is that most people identify FIFA as being all of football. In fact, it's not. There is no continuity of control between FIFA and right down, say, to the club level. You know, for instance, uh, confederations like UEFA are completely autonomous of FIFA. Federations are members of both confederations and FIFA. In other words, there is no clear and distinct line of control uh, in policy matters in football. That has to be addressed. And the best way to address that is for FIFA to become the model of behaviour, become the integrity model and the management model for all of football. At the moment, it is quite frankly the antithesis of that. And it needs to address this in a very positive and a very strong leadership way. The, the most important thing that will occur in the next few months is the election of a new president of FIFA. There's been some debate as to whether that should be an independent person from outside of football. I don't think that's a fair observation, really. Uh, there are so many people involved in football around the world. It's a massive uh, number of people who are involved in the administration of football around the world. There must be people, there are people of great value, great skill and great integrity. They have just been prevented over the last few years, or the last perhaps two decades, from emerging because of the cabal nature of the existing structure. So they must change the structure. The structure must divide the governance responsibilities from the business responsibilities. In other words, the governance side of the house, the people who value sport and the values of sport are promoted and values of football must dominate over business. Again, that was Chris Eaton, Executive Director of Sport Integrity at the ICSS, who spoke with ATR this week about the suspensions of four top FIFA leaders. Be sure to check into Around the Rings for more on the road ahead for FIFA and Rio 2016. And as always, turn to ATR online on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for all news related to the Olympic movement. I'm Nicole Bennett. Thanks for listening.